0: Thanks for joining us. You're listening to the Life Church Podcast. In these episodes, you will hear encouraging messages from our weekend services. If you'd like to know more about us, watch a live stream, or find the closest Eastern Iowa campus near you, go to LifeChurchNow.org. Well, we're in a series that we're wrapping up today. The series is called Disciple, and uh, we've been um, we've looked at some stories straight out of, out of the Gospels that can, kind of give us insight in what it means to be a follower of Jesus, what it takes to follow Jesus, what it means to be a disciple of Christ. Over the last five weeks, we've kind of touched on some critical ideas that I think are super important for us to em- em- embrace and engage. And you've heard me talk about this. If you haven't, if you've not been a part of the series, I, I, I don't have time to really recap where we've been for the last five weeks, but if you haven't uh, been a part of this series, I encourage you to go back and watch them. We have them available for you to watch. Um, now, last week I talked about this. Now, being a disciple of Jesus is going to require commitment. In fact, one of the statements I made last week is that <clears throat> your life, my life, will be defined by the commitments that we make to Jesus. That's, that's a, I, you know, it might sound okay, that's just preacher talk up there Pastor Richie. you know, you always preach. You might feel that way. But this is a very important statement. Your life and my life will be defined, okay? There's an important word there, defined by the commitments that we make to Jesus. Let me, let me kind of reverse engineer this a little bit. If you have aspirations of having a godly, if you're young and you have aspirations of having a godly family, children that serve the lord, grandchildren that are serving Jesus. If that's your if that's your desire, it starts it starts with today making a commitment to Jesus. That commitment is going to define where you're going into your future. And every single day we make these commitments to Jesus and now I look at my own life after, you know, 40 plus years of following Christ <clears throat> And I could see along the way key moments in my life where I made a commitment that led to the next one, that led to the next one, that led to the next one, that led to the next one. Your life, my life, will be defined by the commitments that we make to Jesus. It brings purpose to my life. It brings brings meaning to my, my life. So let's commit to Jesus and never look back. Today we're going to look at a story in Luke chapter 7. <clears throat> now, before I get into it, though, I'm, I think we need to understand a little bit about first century Middle Eastern culture and etiquette, simple politeness, good manners, bad manners, you know, what are good manners, what are bad manners, because we're going to see this evidence in this story. I remember when my family and I first went to Bangladesh, we, um, <clears throat> uh, we landed there, and for the first couple of years that we were in Bangladesh, we had to do language learning, Part of language learning um, is learning the culture, learning the you know, etiquette of how you navigate this country. What do you wear, for example? We're in a, in a country of 160 million people. Most of them are Muslim. How do you dress in public? How do you move about? You know? What are the polite things to say? What are impolite things to say? So we learned all kinds of different uh, cultural ideas. Table manners, for example, is one of them. Um, we learned the uh, the the the, uh, the left hand right hand etiquette in Bangladesh. If you're not familiar with that, let me let me illustrate it this way. Okay, this is my right hand. Everybody, Wilton Cedar Rapids watching. This is my right hand. Um, say right hand. Right hand. right hand. right hand. Okay. This is my left left hand. Okay. Say Charmin. Or Scott, paper, or whatever. <laughs> That's what the left hand's for. Okay, it's the dirty hand. And so we were taught that you don't, you know, you don't do a lot of things with your left hand. So we had this incident where we had a college intern that came by. Uh, they w- we'd have them regularly. would come each summer, and they'd spend the whole summer with us. They were in- interested in missions. And so every intern that would come, we'd give them basically a crash course on the etiquette in Bangladesh of all kinds of different things. And one of those was, what do you do with your left and right hand? I mean, how do you navigate a culture where this is your dirty hand, this is your clean hand, right? And so we do that, you know, and so we had this kid that came and we had actually three of them that came. It was two seminarians and then one Bible school student, younger guy, older students came. <clears throat> and they came and uh, we, we taught, we, you know, we walked them through all the cultural no-nos, how you dress, how you're supposed to act, you know, and one of those parts is, listen, just don't do anything with your left hand, okay? You you just, you're not here long enough for us to give you all the nuances of how you, like, for example, we could have taught them, like, when you're eating with your right hand, okay, this is just separate. If you're eating with your right hand, um, and now, now your right hand is dirty because you're eating with your right hand, and your left hand is automatically dirty because you do other things with that, um, you know, we could have taught them, like, okay, well, then somebody's across the table, and they say, hey, pass me the spoon. Well, what do you do? Are you you it with your foot or something? I mean, you don't use your feet, obviously. No, you learn that there's ways of doing it. So you actually grab the spoon with your left hand, the dirty hand, but to make it clean, you put your right hand underneath, and you hand it like this. And now, it's, it's, just, it's just culture. It's just etiquette, right? Dinner etiquette. But we didn't have time to teach these three-month interns all that stuff. Like, how do you navigate all that? And plus, if we said it, they'd forget anyway. So, so we had this guy come, and, and here's his problem. His problem was he was left-handed. <laughs> so <laughs> he was like, it was, it was terrible. We spent the night at this village, you know, and then we were on our way, uh, woke up the next morning, felt like, we, let's, let's go get breakfast, so we're gonna go into this town, nearby town, and get some breakfast, small town, really. And So we go to this small town to get breakfast. There's only one restaurant, quote-unquote restaurants, more like a a hut with an open-air kind of eating area. So we go to this place to eat, and and we and he knows, left hand, bad, right hand, good, you know, that kind of so He knows all that. So we're sitting there, and we, he orders, we order, so me and the two, we order eggs, chicken eggs, and chapatis, which is like a little bread, flatbread kind of thing. And he ordered duck eggs. Like, I, I was like, are you sure, Kevin, that you want to? order duck eggs. They're kind of big and gross. You know, that's why I said to him, he's like, I love duck eggs. I'm like, okay, fine. You can have duck eggs. So he orders these duck eggs and they are gross. They come, they eat fried over easy. And then once the yolk breaks, it's just this bright red yolk. I was having a hard time sitting across the table, watching them eat, you know, then on top of that, he's eating with his right hand. He's incredibly clumsy. He's like, he's just not doing a good job. I mean, he's got food. He's got egg yolk running down his arm. He's got food all over his arm, you know. He's just trying to eat away. And, and you know, we're already in this restaurant, we're already like the focus of attention anyways, because we're not, not Bangladeshi, we're there. And so everybody's kind of looking at us, you know, and then he just has it. He's like, I'm, I can't do this. So then he starts grabbing the food with his left hand and he's just eating away. And again, you know, yolk and everything all over the place. Well, as soon as he did that, everybody in the, in the restaurant, not a lot of people, like maybe half a dozen or so or less, looked towards him and they're like watching him eat with his left hand. And so we were grossed by the egg yolk. We, we knew he didn't use his left hand for the, the dirty stuff. So we knew that we weren't grossed out that way. But everybody else was. Everybody else was watching and was like, this is disgusting. This guy, you know, that's how they're feeling. And so finally the the... The restaurant owner, shopkeeper, or whatever, he comes up to me, he comes up to the table, he looks, at the, he looks at Kevin, like stares at him, like you could tell he's angry, looks at Kevin, then he looks at me and he says in Bengali, Bam tekeno. like, why are you eating with your left hand? Like, he looks at me, I'm like, I'm not eating with my left hand, he's eating with the left hand, you know? But he looks at me, he's like, why are you eating with your left hand? And then he goes, John, like, go, leave. <laughs> and, and suddenly he grabs a plate and he says, John, get... Yep, he's, he's angry, you can tell he's really angry. He's holding the plate, he's like, get out of here. And so they ran us out of the restaurant because Kevin had to eat with his left hand. Now, you wouldn't normally know these things. These are cultural things that you have to figure out. Everywhere in the world, everybody has cultural etiquettes, cultural norms, especially around the dinner table. And this is what we see that is true in Luke chapter 7. It's interesting. Jesus is at a dinner party there are all kinds of bad manners going on. Simon, a Pharisee, has uh, invited Jesus to come eat, and he breaks a lot of these cultural norms, these, these rules. And it's not because he doesn't know the rules. He knows the rules. He just doesn't really respect Jesus. So he's not honoring Jesus. He's not, he's not you know, he's not respecting him. And so what we see in this story is that this, this Pharisee, Simon, has taught a lesson by a woman who's not even invited to the party about what it means to love Jesus well. And that really is the point of today's message, is how are you loving Jesus today? A disciple of Christ loves Jesus much. I'm going to let that sink in a little bit because I think our knee-jerk reaction is, of course, of course I love Jesus, of course. But a disciple of Jesus loves Jesus well. Okay, Luke seven verse thirty-six. When when one of the Pharisees, excuse me, when one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him, he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. So Jesus shows up; he's at this Pharisee's house. He reclines at the table. He uses that language: reclines at the table because a table is literally on the floor. So just kind of reclining, It's like some think, little cushion things you kind of sit on. And you're just reclining at this table. A woman in that town who lived a sinful life learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house. So she came there and with an alabaster jar of perfume, as she stood behind him at, at as, as she stood behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. Then she wiped them with her hair, kissed them, and poured perfume on them. When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, okay, he's saying this to himself, okay. If this man were a prophet, he would know who is touching him and what kind of woman she is. So he's being judgmental about who this woman is, and he's also being judgmental of Christ. That she's a sinner. Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to tell you. I like this little, it's actually an idiom in in the original language, in the idiom that was used. It basically means, I'm gonna share share with you a piece of my mind. I'm about to tell you how it is, is basically what Jesus is saying here. And so he goes on to say in verse 40, tell me teacher, he said, two people owed money to a certain money lender. One owed him 500 denarii and the other 50. So two different amounts, one a little bit, one a lot. Neither of them had the money to pay him back, so they both can't pay the loan back. So he forgave, their, he forgave the debts of both of them. So they both, their debts get forgiven. I'm, I'm just re, 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 restating what's already said, right? Now, which of them will love him more? Who's gonna love the master more, Jesus? Is this is a, kind of a rhetorical question. Who's gonna love the master more? Simon replied, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt forgiven. You have judged correctly, Jesus said. Then he turned turned toward the woman and said to Simon, do you see this woman here? This woman who sins for a living. Do you see this woman here? I came into your house. You did not give me any water for my feet, but she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss, but this woman from the time I entered has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head, but she has poured perfume on my feet. Therefore, I tell you, now he's telling Simon, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven as her great love has shown. So here's key to this. How she loves Jesus makes the point how much she has been forgiven. Okay, this is the point that Jesus is making. But whoever has been forgiven little, loves only little. You've probably heard that saying around every once in a while, you know. To him is forgiven much, loves much. To him is forgiven little, loves little. And so Jesus is invited by this Pharisee to come eat at his house. And when he shows up, Simon is just rude. Like it was customary for, uh, you know, Simon probably this leading rabbi, uh, leading Pharisee in this town, and it was customary that when. When a, a guest would come in of equal standing, like if it was a guest who was of the same kind of mostly economic equal standing, um, that, that the, the host would kiss the guest on the cheek. That was just no, common courtesy. Common courtesy. It's like when I walk into a home in Bangladesh, and I, and I see a, a, the, the host has invited me, and I walk in, and I put my hand up to my head, and I say, as alaikum. And he will respond back, walaikum assalam. It's just a common courtesy. I could walk in and not do it. And, or I could walk in and do it, and then he could be like, eh, whatever. You see, so there's, there's courtesy. So it was common courtesy for this guest to be kissed on the cheek. If he really wanted to honor Jesus, he would have kissed him on his hand. Jesus gets Neither. Jesus comes in and his feet are dirty. Again, it was customary, actually even mandatory, that your feet would be washed before you would sit at a meal because you're sitting on the floor. Your feet are turned sideways. Your dirty feet are showing sitting at the meal. It's just gross, really. So it was just customary to, to, to offer to wash somebody's feet. If you really wanted to honor that person, you would wash his feet yourself. The host would wash his feet himself. Or maybe he would have a servant that would actually wash the feet of, of the of the guest. At bare minimum, you would have a basin and a towel available so that the person walking in would actually get to wash their feet. But again, none of this happens. Jesus' feet remain dirty and unwashed. Another custom of honor was to anoint your guest with a little oil on their forehead. forehead maybe like olive oil, cheap, inexpensive oil, really, but you just anoint a little bit of oil, just a way of saying, hey, I am so glad you're in my house. I bless you in my home. That's what, that's what it signified. <clears throat> but it doesn't happen. None of this happens. And so here's a question that kind of surfaces when I think about this. Why even do it then? Why even invite Jesus to your house? If you don't really respect him, if you don't really want to honor him, if you really don't want him to be there, why even do any of this stuff? It's a question for us here in Corville, Cedar Rapids and Wilton. Why even be here if you don't really want to be here, right? I think too many of us relate to Jesus by reducing our relationship to him as just a a, kind of a checklist, boxes that we check off. Like I'm at church, okay, I tithe. You know, it took me a while to get to that point of tithing, but I tithe now, check, check. And that's it. That's it. And so the question is, why even do this? I think this is what Simon is doing. He's just checking boxes. Simon is likely this ranking religious leader of this town and Again, it was customary for, the, for, the, for him to invite the, the guest rabbi into, into his home for a meal. I could just hear Simon saying, oh, fine, this rebellious, crazy rabbi is here. All right, fine. Jesus, you want to come eat at my house? Fine. Kind of the attitude. His heart's not in it. He doesn't even really want Jesus there. He's kind of annoyed and bothered by it, right? He's just checking a box. He's just doing it out of duty. And I think some of you might feel the same way sometimes when it comes to your faith. Like maybe you're just doing this because your grandma's dying wish was for you to just go to church. Or you're doing this because your girlfriend said, I'm not going to date you unless you, to, unless you go to church with me. There's a whole list of things that we do. Our heart's not in it, but we do the same thing. that's what's happening in this story. Simon's heart is not in it. And it's interesting, there's an irony about this because Simon is a Pharisee, which means that he went to rabbinical school, which means that by the time he was 12 years old, listen to this, by the time he was 12 years old, he had the entire Pentateuch memorized, you know, the first five books of the Bible, memorized. Like we, you know, we're like, man, I'm gonna read my Bible through in one year this year. So we read Genesis and we read Exodus and we get to Leviticus, we're like, "Ah, I'm done. And we're like, I can't go any further. And we're not even memorizing; we're just reading. Simon had it all memorized by the time he was 12 years old. By the time he was 15, he had the entire Old Testament memorized. And here's the irony, he had the entire Old Testament memorized, which contains about 300 prophecies about the coming Messiah. So these prophecies are floating around in his head. And he's sitting there having dinner and the Messiah is sitting right across the table from him. And Simon is not excited. He's not praising God, he's not doing, he's annoyed. He's frustrated. He's like, here's this guy, I gotta, have, gotta serve this guy food. The Messiah sits across the table with his cheek not kissed, his feet not washed, his head not anointed. Now, that happened in Simon's house. I think it happens in this house as well sometimes where we do the same thing, right? Where people come in, and I don't know, religion has done something to them. Like somehow they just feel better than somebody else, more righteous than somebody else, of greater standing religiously than somebody else. Like they they can win Bible trivia contests all day long but their heart doesn't belong to Jesus. And they think that their job is basically to be a critic and to judge others. And so because of this, what happens is it's magnificent what Luke, what Luke does. Basically, a woman is introduced into this story. The Bible says she calls her a sinner, that she lived a sinful life. A better translation is that she sinned for a living. She was a woman of the city. She was a prostitute. And she comes into this, into this story. Now I want you to think about this. She, she walks into a dinner party of a bunch of religious leaders. <laughs> if you can imagine that, right? Everyone knows who she is. And they're sitting there thinking, why is she here? What is she doing in this house? Doesn't she know that this is the house of a, of a reputable Pharisee? Doesn't she know that, you know, we're all educated peoples of standard? Why would she even think to come to this house? Others in the room were probably embarrassed for Simon like she's here embarrassed for her for him. I think others were not trying not to make eye contact because they were embarrassed for themselves because well she knew them. <clears throat> She sits at the feet of Jesus, and I'm guessing that while she sits at the feet of Jesus, Jesus recognized her from earlier on, or maybe he was teaching and saw her there. <clears throat> I don't know what he taught exactly, but something captivated her heart. Something helped her understand how God feels about her. That she mustered up the courage to go to this Pharisee's house to see Jesus. Jesus looks at her and no man has ever looked at her that way. It's just... It's, it's, she's so moved by it that as Jesus looks at her and she can see his eyes piercing right through her and it's not eyes of lust, it's not eyes of I wanna, I wanna, you know, a trick with you. It's not any of that, it's like I love you. I could just see Jesus smile and as he smiles at her, she just comes undone. She just has words to say. She's like, I don't know what to do. I don't know what to say here. Except just, she starts weeping. I'll tell you, she's weeping and tears are falling and suddenly I can just imagine the tears falling on Jesus' dirty feet and she starts seeing the streaks of dirt. And she realizes his feet have not been washed. She knows she can't, she can't ask for a towel. They won't give it to her or water, so she undoes her hair, long hair, which, by the way, that was culturally inappropriate. You only left that for the bedroom, but she undoes her hair. The room gasps. They're just like, they can't believe that this is happening, that she lets her hair down, something she had done Many times before, for many men, but never for free. <clears throat> and she washes the feet of Jesus with her tears and dries his feet with her hair. Everyone, Everyone is expecting Jesus to say something or say, "This is so wrong. This is so inappropriate. Come on, prophet, say something about that." She has this jar around her neck of expensive perfume. Something she would use in her profession, one little drop at a time, one man at a time. She takes this jar and just pours it out on Jesus' feet. The room, I'm sure, was overwhelmed with this scent. This jar represented so many things for this woman. It was expensive perfume. It was very expensive. It it could have provided for her. It could have, she could have sold it and just had a good life. So it was financial connection to that jar. It also represented the life that she had been living. Yeah, it was looked down upon and all that stuff, but for her, it was a way of surviving. It was a way of having an identity in her culture, and she makes the choice to pour it all out on Jesus' feet. I'll get back to that in a second. So was this all reckless? Yes. Yes, it was reckless. Was it impulsive? Uh, I I guess so. I mean, I don't think she knew when she showed up at Simon's house, that Jesus' feet would not, she would have just expected it. She was actually horrified culturally that his feet had not been washed. So, you know, it was, yeah, it was pretty random, pretty impulsive for her to do that. Was it inappropriate? Totally inappropriate. The crowd in that room was just aghast. Did Jesus love it? You bet he did. Just like he loves when you lavish your worship on him on a Sunday morning. Just like he loves when you come to him in desperate need for him to just rescue you. You bet he loves it. So the question I've got for us is, when was the last time you had a moment like that? When was the last time in his presence that you experienced and felt his grace and his love and his compassion towards you, that it moved you to tears, that it caused you to do some crazy things. Emptying the jar is about responding to his extravagant love towards us. Emptying the jar is when you say to Jesus, everything I have is yours. Do we mean that? Do we really mean that? Everything I have is yours, Jesus. Emptying the jars when you surrender in such a way that other people look at you and are a little worried that you're taking this Jesus thing a little too far. <laughs> I met some missionaries uh, to Egypt um, today, this, this past week. Um, Jeff and Mary Beth, I won't say their last name. They're, they're headed to Cairo, which I responded, I was like, man. Good luck. <laughs> uh, I've been in big cities, and it was kind of scary. And so I, just by that, I gave them props. I'm like, you guys are amazing. Just your, the fact that you're going to Cairo is pretty amazing. Jeff leaves a career of, uh, of his profession of being a, a civil engineer, good career that he had, 20-plus years. Mary Beth is a successful real estate agent in uh, Kansas City area. And she's done well for herself, and she leaves that as yeah. well, just to be able to tell people tell people about Jesus. Um, they leave behind four of their five kids, and I, I sat there in that coffee shop, and I saw Mary Beth talking about it. She's just tears are just streaming down her cheek as she's talking about leaving them behind. She's never been away from them. <clears throat> I'm sure people around them were saying, "Are you crazy?" What's wrong with you? Like, I could just hear a relative say, aren't you taking this, this Jesus thing a little too far? But if you ask Jeff and Mary Beth, this is what they'll tell you, no, we're just emptying the jar because everything that we have belongs to him. That's what we're doing. And so emptying the jar gets uncomfortable. Sometimes it's not practical but it's marked by this extravagant worship and extravagant generosity. So in verse 39, it says this, is when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, okay, Simon, who had saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, okay, so he's challenging whether he knows what he's, what he's talking about, he would know who is touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she is a sinner. Now he doesn't say this out loud, but listen to the next line. Jesus answered him like, hey, Simon, you know I can, I can, I can hear your thoughts. I am a prophet because I can hear your thoughts. I know exactly what you're thinking. And so Jesus responds when he tells the story of these two servants. One had a big debt, one had a little debt. And the master forgave them both. And then what he does is he illustrates that story with a woman that's there, the prostitute. And he says, look, Simon, you see this woman? From the time I came into your house, you did not kiss my cheek, She hasn't stopped kissing my feet. You didn't anoint my head with oil. She's anointed my feet with perfume. You didn't even wash my feet. And she washes my feet with her tears and her hair. Simon, you don't get it. You don't get it. And here's why. Because the one who has been forgiven much loves much. The one who's been forgiven little loves little. She's been forgiven a lot and she knows it. Now, this doesn't mean that that Simon does not have anything to be forgiven. Therefore, he doesn't have the aptitude or the ability to love much because he's only been forgiven a little. That could be the logic that you could get out of this passage but that's not what what Jesus is saying here. What it is is that Simon doesn't realize how much he needs to be forgiven. Like he's figured out, I can live. Let me me contextualize. I can live this Christian life with my own merit, my own abilities. I have the ability to do the right thing. I had the ability to, to look good and come across good. That everybody looks at me and says, oh, what a model Christian. And realize that all of it is my own self-righteousness. See, Simon doesn't realize that his self-righteousness is wanting to make God puke. That's what the Bible tells us. He doesn't realize how broken he really is. See, Simon just doesn't get it. I mean, when you understand just how much God has given to you, when you understand that there's this grace available to you, then naturally, naturally, you empty the jar. Naturally. It's not an effort. It's not hard work. You just do it because you're so conscious of the grace and the love and the forgiveness in your life that you just naturally give it all back to him. So the question for us that I want us to wrestle with in this story is this. Who am I in this story? Who am I in this story? Maybe a better question is, who do I want to be in this story? Now, I know, I know, I know here's what we'll say. Of course, we want to be like this woman who just gave it all to Jesus. We say that. I don't think that we always mean that. Because I think oftentimes what we do, and let me just, okay, can I, let's just, you're probably like, Rich, man, you're being so hard on this. Okay, let me just talk about myself. This is what I do. I want Jesus in my life. but You know, Jesus, I kind of got this figured out. I know how to do this. I'm very, very self-reliant. My culture taught me to be that way. So much so you can ask my wife, Friday, I spent most of the day working on my fireplace, trying to get the electrical run. I got scars, I mean, I've got scratches on my arm, trying to snake wire through my thing. Thankfully, Jim came and saved the day for me. <laughs> I said to myself Friday evening, because I was just tired of working on my house all day, I said to myself, you know what? There's a car in my garage that needs brakes. I'm just not gonna do anything tomorrow. Tomorrow's Saturday, I gotta preach on Sunday. I'm not say I work on my brakes. Of course not. I was up at seven o'clock in the morning. I was changing brakes on this car. I said to myself, when I went into it, this, hey, this is gonna take a couple hours, it won't be a big deal. By 5 p.m., I walk in, my wife says, stop working. Now I know, you might say, well, that's good trade, Rich, you work hard. Except that sometimes we translate that into our spiritual life. And we think that the solutions for our spiritual walk is to just work hard. And then when we succeed, we had these minor successes along the way spiritually. We say to ourselves, hey, good job, Rich. You're a good Christian. This woman, it's not what she did. She was so aware of her brokenness. She was so aware of of the grace that had been lavished upon her that she had just this natural reaction that was empty the jar. And I just want to say to you as a pastor of this church and on behalf of our staff and our board and just everybody that calls us, that's the church that we want to be. That's the people that we want to be. We're called to be disciples of Jesus Christ. And a disciple of Jesus Christ just naturally, just naturally empties the jar. Because of what Jesus has done in our life. Amen. Amen. We should be known for extravagant worship and extravagant generosity. Why? Because of what Jesus has done for us. Now, I was talking about collectively as a church, but that actually applies to each one of us individually as well. I should be known, Rich Green should be known for extravagant worship and extravagant generosity because of what Jesus has done in my life. I never want to forget that. I have this thing in my, it's a routine of mine. I wake up every morning thinking about it. 42 years ago, this little drug addict kid riding his bike to the parking lot at this church encountered this youth group. And my life got turned around within a couple of days after that. I didn't deserve it. I didn't deserve a single bit of it. But Jesus graciously lavished it all on me. Now, here's the thing. I've done a lot of things since then. And it's easy for me to say, look how far I've come. Look what I have done. But here's my habit every single day. Jesus, I thank you. I thank you for that day on my bicycle at Duncanville Memorial Assembly of God. I thank you that you met me that day. And I remind myself of where I've been so that I could then naturally, when he says, Hey, Rich, I want you to go to Bangladesh. Okay, Lord, I empty the jar. Hey, Rich, I want you to go plant a church in Iowa. Okay, Lord, I just, I I don't want to. I said that. I don't want to. It's, they grow potatoes there, and I don't like potatoes. No, I'm just kidding. I didn't, like, I don't want to. But Lord, I just want to empty the jar. And I know that there are choices and decisions in your life right now that are requiring you to empty the jar. The question is, will you? Will you? He who has been forgiven much, loves much. Amen? Amen. Let's, if you're here, listen, in fact, let's, just, let's not end it just like that. Cedar Rapids and Wilton you do the same thing. If you're here and that's a commitment that you want to make, Jesus, I want to live a life where I just lavishly worship you, where I extravagantly worship you and I have extravagant generosity. I want to live a life of emptying the jar. Just stand up right now where you're you're sitting. Just stand up. Father, we just want to thank you, Jesus, for what you're doing in this place. We thank you, Father, for your spirit in this place. We thank you, Jesus, that you have called us, you have invited us into a journey with you to be a disciple of yours. A disciple who recognizes his own poverty, who recognizes his own futility, his own ability of making himself better and throws himself at your feet, breaks the jar and empties it. So this morning, Jesus, we that's our commitment. Here in, in Corville our brothers and sisters in Cedar Rapids, that's our commitment. To our brothers and sisters in Wilton, that is our commitment right now. We wanna be a people who empty the jar. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's worship.